Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here today. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at E-Free. I want to send a great and big welcome to all of the moms here in the auditorium, the moms over in the venue, and the moms watching online. We are so thankful for you that you do a tremendous job, and it's such a huge and vital role in your families, in our church family, and in the community. We're so grateful for you guys that we know that you do a job that gets minimal thanks and that one day is really not adequate to say thank you for all that you do throughout the year. But we hope that you feel loved and cared for today. We hope that you feel uh, special today because you are amazing and we are very thankful for you. So we are going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. And today as we start, I want to tell you a story about a little boy. And his story begins with a cough. And he begins coughing, and his mom and his dad get worried. And they try not to let their fear, try not to let their worry get to their faces, because they don't want him to know that they're afraid. And they do a pretty good job of not letting him know. They do a pretty good job of keeping their minds where they're at, instead of running to what this cough might develop into, what it might become for him and for their family. But then the cough turns into a fever, and the fever gets worse. And they can't hide their fear. They can't hide their worry. So dad runs and he gets a doctor. The doctor comes, he looks at their son, and he says, you need to soak rags and keep putting it on him. Try and keep him as cool as you possibly can. And then he pulls mom and dad into another room and he says, you also need to pray because I don't think your son's gonna make it. He says, I'm so sorry. And he leaves. Mom begins to cry, sits down on the floor, Dad begins to run around the room, knocking things off of counters, off of shelves, grabbing a bag, putting a little bit of food, a little bit of water, an extra jacket in there, grabs his walking stick. From the floor, through tears, mom says, are you leaving? Are you just going to run out? Like, don't make me stay here and watch him die on my own. Don't leave. And the husband comes over and he takes his wife's face in his hands and he says, there is a man in Cana who can do miracles. There is a man who can do things no man should be able to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to get him and I'm going to beg and I'm going to plead him to come back and heal our son. And he stands up and he leaves. And he runs. And he runs because he races a clock that he does not know how many minutes are left on it. He runs because he has to get to Cana to find Jesus before Jesus leaves. Because if Jesus leaves Cana, then this man's hope leaves Cana with him. And so he runs, and he runs, and he runs until he cannot run anymore. And then he begins to walk and breathe heavy and walk as fast as he can until he gets to Cana. Then when he gets to Cana, you might think it's going to be hard to find Jesus in this village or this city. But wherever Jesus goes, a crowd forms. So he gets to this crowd and begins to think, I'm going to have to push my way through, fight my way through. How am I going to get to Jesus? I have to get to him. As he goes to push on the first man and try to push his way through, the man turns around. And what he sees in this man's eyes is determination and desperation. And he is drenched from running, drenched from walking. And he steps aside. And person after person steps aside until this man gets to Jesus. And he falls on his hands and his knees and he says, please. Please, my son is dying. Please, would you come and would you save him? He is near death and you are his only hope. 
Please, teacher, would you come and would you heal him? So this morning, I want to look at this story where this man comes and he pleads for his son's life. And then I want to look at another story where another man is in need of Jesus' help. But I want to see what lessons can we learn for here and now from what Jesus does for these two men. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you were good. I think that you were great. And Lord, I pray for all my friends here in this room. God, for my friends in this room who have stopped praying. God, that they, they prayed for something that was good and they didn't get it. And so they said to themselves, what good is prayer? God, I pray that you would knock on their hearts, you would knock on their ears this morning and they would decide that they want to open that door and begin to talk to you again. God, for the rest of us that we're talking to you, Lord, I pray you would give us eyes to see people in this world the way you see them. Guys, that we'd be able to see people not as enemies to be hated, but as people to be loved, as people made in your image. God, would you help us to see people the way you see them? Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4 to start. John 4, verse 43. So the easiest way to find John, if you have your Bible in hand, is to open towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to the right, you'll find John. You get to Acts, Romans, Corinthians, you're too far to the right, go to the left, and you will find John. So John 4, 43 is where we're going to start. And as we begin, what you need to know is that Jesus has been in Samaria, and he's been teaching Samaritans. And Jesus loves the Samaritans. He sees them as people that are equals. He sees them as people made in God's image. But the rest of the Israelites, they probably struggle with this. They don't see Samaritans as equals. They see them as less than. And so Jesus has been there showing these people, they matter to God. They're equal with you. God cares about them. And now he's going to move on. Verse 43. It says, after the two days of being in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So one of the first things I want to talk about is we have these places. We have Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And the easiest way for us to think about them in our modern mindset is to think of them as states, that they're regions in this time period. But if you think of them as a state, you have the state of Judea, the state of Samaria, and the state of Galilee. And inside these states, you have cities. And so the two cities we get here are Cana and Capernaum. And so Jesus has left the state of Samaria and gone to the state of Galilee. And when he arrives, the people welcome him. Now, this is interesting because John points out that Jesus himself had said a prophet's not welcomed in his own hometown. So why is it that he comes to his own state and they welcome him? Why is this? I think the reason is, is because they're welcoming not as the Messiah or as a savior. They're welcoming him as a miracle worker. That it says they were at the Passover festival in Jerusalem and they saw the signs and wonders, the, the marvelous things that he had done there. And so they think, okay, he's come to town. He's going to do this kind of stuff here. So you just think about it, you know, if you ever go to New York and you see a Broadway play and then it, that same play shows up here in Kearney, you're like, it's come to Kearney. This is incredible. 
Like, this is what they're doing. They're going, we were in Jerusalem. We saw this guy. It was incredible. And now he's here. This is awesome. But they're excited about him as a miracle worker, not as the Messiah, not as the Savior. Then it also tells us that he gets to this village or this city of Cana. And while he's in Cana, this royal official comes from Capernaum because his son is very, very sick. Now, it doesn't say how the man travels. When I told you the story earlier, I had him run, but it's possible that he walked, possibly rode a donkey or a horse, maybe even had a chariot. He's a royal official, so he might have some means. But he gets there somehow. And when he gets there, he begins to ask Jesus for help. Now, here's what's interesting. He's a royal official. And so it's very likely that he's Roman. He could be a Jewish person. But if he's a Jewish person, he's working for the Romans. So he's probably not viewed very favorably by the crowd. It's possible that many of them would have seen him as an enemy to the Israelite people. That here's a guy from another people group who's oppressing our people group, and he's come and he has the audacity to ask Jesus for help. And so there's maybe someone there that says, Jesus, you should send this guy away. We don't want to help him or his family. He's oppressing our people. Get him out of here. There might be some in the crowd that are, they just want to see a miracle. This guy needs a miracle, so let's see what Jesus is going to do. So let's see what Jesus is going to do. Verse 48. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. This is an interesting response to a guy who's asking for help to heal his son. And Jesus looks at him and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. So why is it that he does this? I think there's two reasons. I think the first reason is that Jesus is not talking just to this one man, but he's talking to the crowd. John's told us these people seem to be excited to see Jesus perform miracles, signs, and wonders. And so I think he's talking to all of them. And the second piece is he just came from the Samaritans. He just came from Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, John doesn't tell us that he performed any miracles there. It's possible he performed one wonder for one woman. So he's at this well, and this woman shows up, and he tells her the sinful things she'd been doing in her life, which causes her to say, you must be a prophet. And then in that conversation, Jesus says, no, I'm actually the Messiah. She leaves her water jug. She runs back to town. She knocks on everyone's doors, and she says, there's a guy out here who told me anything, everything that I've ever done. He's the Messiah. You should come check him out. So they go out, and they hear him teach, And then they say, we believe that you're the Messiah, not just because of what she said, but because we ourselves have heard you with our own ears. That it doesn't seem like Jesus did miracles and signs and wonders there, and yet the Samaritans believed. Then he comes to his own people, the Israelites. They've seen signs and wonders already, and they go, we want more signs. We want more wonders, that we're just interested to see this. And so it seems like he's going, why are you not ready to believe? How many signs, how many wonders do you have to see before you're ready to put your faith in me? Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So the man says, please come down. The reason he says come down is because Capernaum is up by the seaside and Cana is up in the foothills somewhere. And so we were going to have to go down in elevation to get to Capernaum. He says, please come with me. My son is dying. Would you please help? And Jesus' response is, go. Your son will live. So the man, now the man has a choice. Am I going to take Jesus at his word and leave and hope that when I get home, my son is going to be well? Or am I going to stay and beg and plead and say, no, you have to come with me. You have to physically come with me. 
But this man chooses to take Jesus at his word. He believes and he goes. Now the crowd has a choice because the crowd's come to see a miracle. They see a guy who came who needs a miracle. Jesus tells him, you received a miracle, now go home. What are they going to believe? Are they going to take Jesus at his word? Are they going to believe that Jesus did what he said he did? What are they going to do? We keep on with the story, verse 51. It says, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So the man's walking home, or riding home, or driving home, or whatever. He's going home, and these servants come towards him. Now, I imagine that as soon as they realize this is their boss, they begin shouting, your son is alive! Your son is alive! Your son is alive! Because if I and the servants, I wanted him to know as soon as we can get close enough to communicate that I bring good news. So they begin to shout, your son is alive. He's well. Then when they get it close enough that they can communicate, he says, what time? When did he get better? And they say, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I imagine he just sits down on the ground. He goes, that was the exact moment. That was the exact moment when Jesus said to me, go, your son will live. So then he gets home, and he takes his son, and he puts him on his knee, and he gathers around the whole household, and he says, let me tell you what happened. I ran, and I got there, and I begged him to help, and he said, go home. Your son will live. And that's the exact moment that you got better. That's the exact moment. And then the whole household puts their faith in Jesus and say, this man, he is not a prophet. He is God. Come down to us. So the first lesson that we pick up from this story is that God responds to our requests. God responds to our requests. This man comes, he asks Jesus for help, and Jesus responds to him. God responds to our requests. Every single time we talk to God, every single time we pray, we say, God, would you help? Would you do this? Would you guide me? Would you direct me? Would you help this person, that person? Every single time, God responds. But he responds in one of three ways. So the first way is he can say yes. He says, yes, what you're asking for is in alignment with my will, that it's what's best for you, it's what's best for the people around you, and so I'll say yes to this. And there are sometimes we ask for things, and he says no. He says, what you're asking for is not what's best for you in this moment. It's not what's in alignment for my, with my will. It's not what's best for the people around you. And that's really hard. And there are some times where he says, not yet. He says, not yet. He says, I can, I'm going to give you this thing eventually, but not right now. Not yet. That there will come a day where I will give this thing to you, but you cannot have it now. It is not best for you to have it now. It's best for you to have it in a week or a month or a year or five years or ten years or however long. So he says, yes, no, or not yet. This is how he responds every time. That he, he doesn't go, well, let me think about it. He doesn't go, well, let me weigh out the pros and the cons. He instantly can know every single one of us in this room, all over the globe, whenever we pray, he can go, yes, no, not yet, yes, no, not yet. He doesn't have to think about it. He's incredible. There's no one like him. But we, we get this to a certain extent as parents. My guess is if you were a parent or if you babysat someone at some point, you had this moment where they came and they asked. 
And there's certain things, you know, they ask for them. I will say yes. So your son or daughter comes to you and says, hello, mother. I would like some broccoli for supper. You're like, yes. That is a yes. I will give you that. But then there are other times when they come to you and they say, good morning, mother. May I please have some ice cream for breakfast? Like, no. No, we're not going to do that. And then there are other times where they come to you and they say, hello, mother, may I please take some of my money and you take some of your money and we put it together and buy me a car? Like, no, you're seven. <laughs> we'll talk about it when you're 16. We'll talk about it, but not yet. Like, we get this as parents. We know there are times we say yes because it's in line with our will as parents. There's times we say no because it's not in our alignment with will as parents. And there's other times we say, you got to wait, you're seven. And a Mustang is not a great thing for a seven-year-old. But at the same time, we know it's hard. It's hard when we, say, we hear no, especially when we ask for something that's a good thing. When we ask for something and we pleaded for it and we begged for it and it was a good thing and God said no. And that can be really hard. And we hold on to that because we're going to talk about that in a moment. But now we need to jump forward a little bit. So John 5, verse 1, we're going to pick up a different story where someone else needs help. So this is disconnected from this other man who Jesus just helped. We have a, a new person who needs help. So verse, chapter 5, verse 1, says some time later. So we don't give it a specific amount of time, but it seems pretty significant. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. All right, before we talk about any of the verses, we have to talk about how probably most of your Bibles or your phone apps, it skips verse 4. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And you're like, did they forget 4? Like, what happened? So here's what's going on. If you, my Bible has brackets, and then in the brackets there's the number 4. It means I have a footnote down here at the bottom of my Bible, and this is what my footnote says. It says, some manuscripts include here, holy or in part, paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever, whatever disease they had. So here's what's happened. In the earliest manuscripts we have, or the earliest copies of John that we have, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 doesn't exist. It's not there. And so our modern-day Bible scholars and translators, they study this and they go, we don't think that John deserves credit for verse 4, that we want, what we want in our Bible is only what John wrote. We don't want other people added over time. We want just what John has. And as they look back at the copies, they're going, what we see here is that John probably did not write verse 4. And so they have moved it down to a footnote because someone at some point thought, Okay, people are confused about what's happening here. Why are all these um, people that are injured or sick beyond medical help, why are they gathering around this pool? And so they added in this note about how there was this belief that an angel would come down and stir up the water, and whoever got in first would be healed. Now, most likely this is a natural spring, and so there's not an angel coming down, but it bubbles up or it swirls, and there's just belief. If I got in, I would be healed. So that might cause you to be concerned. You go, well, there's one verse in there that, we're not sure about. How about all the rest of the verses? What you need to know is that 99% of the, 
of the Bible, if not more than that, 99% at the very least, we are very confident about. We're very confident that the original author, he is uh, getting the right credit for it, that it's not somebody else adding things or changing things over time, that it is what John wrote. But there are these little 1% or less pieces that we look at and we just go, we're not really sure. It's not there in the earliest ones, so it's possible that they made a miscalculation and they got it back right later on. But what's most important is that all these little 1% or less, none of them are vital. None of them change our faith. None of them are what we base our lives upon or base our hope upon. There are things like, well, in some manuscripts, it says this village, and then some manuscripts, it says a different village that's one letter difference, and we're not sure which village it is, or sometimes it's there should be, some has a the here, and sometimes they don't have a the, or sometimes it's like this, where there's this extra detail that if this is um, authentic to John, doesn't change our life, doesn't change our faith. If it's not authentic to John, it doesn't change our faith or our life. Nothing hinges upon whether this verse should or should not be here. So if it should be there when we take it out, it's not a big deal. If it shouldn't be there and we read it as we go, this is what's going on, it's also not the end of the world. But what I want you to know is we should have good confidence that our Bible is trustworthy and reliable. But I wanted to explain why is verse 4 not there. Okay, with all that done, let's get to the good stuff. So I love these verses. One of the things I love about it is how John gives you directions. Like John is giving you a direction to an actual place that actually exists. He goes, if you want to get to this pool, you have to go through the sheep gate, and you're going to find a pool that has five covered colonnades, and then it's called Bethesda, and there would all be these people that were injured beyond medical help that would gather around there. And that's how you guys give directions. At least I think so. This is how we give directions. Like if you want to get someone to your house, and you don't just say put it in Google Maps, but you're like, let me give you directions. You go, okay, you're going to go down this road, and you're going to get to a barn. And the barn's got a door that's hanging off. It's bright red. You're going to turn right at that door. And then you're going to go on another road until you get to a giant oak tree that has a tire swing. And then you're going to turn left there, and you're going to go to get a tree that got split in half because it got hit by lightning 10 years ago. And then you're going to turn again, and when you get to that next road, I live on the right. Like, that's how you tell someone if you want to get them to an actual place that actually exists. So I love that he puts this detail in here because he's getting us to a place that actually exists. Now there's this pool and all these people who were injured beyond medical help would gather there because they were hoping that the water would stir and they could get in and hopefully be healed. And in this, there is one guy who's been injured. Seems like he's paralyzed and he's been injured for 38 years. Now we don't know if he's been at this pool for 38 years, but he's been unable to walk. He's been injured for 38 years. So for 38 years, people have probably been walking around him, stepping over him, ignoring him, not making eye contact with him, not talking to him. If they do, sometimes it's hurtful, it's mean, it's vengeful for 38 years. So pretend that today, right now, is the day this man is going to be healed. We go back 38 years, that puts us in 1983. That means the third Star Wars movie, The Return of the Jedi, has not come out in theaters yet. That it's about to come out at the end of May, people are very excited, but it hasn't come out yet. It also means there's a guy named Tom Osborne who has not won a single national title, and people are really wondering, can he win the big one? There's also this country called Russia that doesn't exist yet. It's the Soviet Union, and the United States is kind of nervous about it. And then lastly, it means I wasn't born yet. Like, this is 38 years ago. Like, this guy, almost four decades, almost four decades 
This guy has been unable to walk, but in despair of this is my life, this is the situation I'm in. And however long he's been at this pool, he's been trying to get in and has not been able to get in the pool. So verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd become in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? So I imagine that Jesus walks over to him, he kneels down, and he says, Sir, do you, do you want to get well? Which is a strange question to ask a sick person. But he asks him, do you want to get well? And this is the man's response in verse 7. He says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So this guy believes that there's something magical or healing or whatever about this. That he has this belief, I could just get in the pool, I'd be better. So however long he's been there, there's these moments when the water stirs and he tries to crawl in. He tries to pull himself. He maybe begs and pleads, would you, would you toss me in? Would you put me in? And time after time, someone else has gotten in before him. And so he's sitting there and he's looking at the pool and he's going, I'm this close. I'm this close to walking. I'm this close to being healed. I'm this close for my life getting turned around. I just can't get there. There's nobody to get me in. There's no one to push me in. I'm this close. Now, all the while, Jesus, author, creator, sustainer of the universe, is kneeling next to him. The one who designed the human body, made bone and muscle, the nervous system. And he's going, if I could just get over there. This is Jesus' response. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So Jesus says, get up and walk. And instantly, he's healed. He jumps up, he picks up his mat, and he takes off. That he, like, you imagine, for 38 years, you're in this situation. And for the first time in 38 years, you can feel your toes. And he gets up and he walks and he's so overjoyed, so excited, he just takes off. He doesn't even think about who, like, what just happened. He's just going. And then Jesus disappears into the crowd. So here's where we get lesson number two. Lesson number two is that God responds from his compassionate heart, sometimes even before we ask. That it's possible that this man, Jesus could see in him this request of, would you please help me? It's possible that Jesus saw faith in him but there isn't this verbal exchange of, I believe, would you help me, or would you please help me? But Jesus does it before the man even asks. I think Jesus is driven by compassion. He sees a man who for 38 years has been stuck. For 38 years, he has been in despair. And Jesus says, no more. Get up and walk. And so Jesus, he is spectacular. There is none like him. And he's full of compassion and grace and mercy. And it pours forward onto this man and he's healed. 
Now, I think that God gives us so many great and good gifts before we ask, before we think. Like, so you look at moms. Moms are this incredible gift that nobody asked for. Like, none of us, before we were born, were able to say, God, would you please give me a great mom? We just show up. And then our moms are a mom. And they're awesome. So many of us have amazing moms. They have these amazing qualities. Like, you, you think about a mom. God designs them to be one of the people on the planet that cares the most about you, that sacrifices the most for you, that serves the most for you, and they do it for little to no thanks. Like, this is spectacular. And how often do we thank God for our moms? How often do we thank our moms? And how often do we do the same thing to God? Where God does thousands, if not millions of things for us without us having to ask, without us saying thank you, and yet he does them. So I cannot, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think in my entire life, before I got, went to bed at night, I ever sat down and said, God, please, 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 would you bring the sun back around so that the sun would rise tomorrow? Please, just one more day. Never once. And the vast majority of mornings, when the sun comes up, I don't go, God, thank you. Thank you that you brought the sun up. But you better believe there's ever a morning where it's 10 a.m. and it is like pitch black outside. I'm going to be like, God, what are you doing? The sun is supposed to be up. It is not up. What are you doing? Like, this is how I'm going to be. I can tell you with confidence that's what I'm going to be doing if it ever happens. But yet, I do not thank him for the thousands of times he's done it for me. Think about your life and how many different things God does. How many good gifts does God give us that we never asked for? That you stop at certain moments and you go, man, God, you gave me an amazing mom and I never asked for her. You gave me an amazing sister or brother or kids or job or friends or whatever it is that I never asked for it. And like if you begin to think about how many things does God give me because he is compassionate and kind and gracious and we didn't ask for it. How many times has God maybe saved us or rescued us without us even realizing we needed saved or rescued? Or how many times has he saved or rescued our kids without us having to realize that, man, we don't find out until 20 years later that, like, yeah, remember when I was in high school and I said that my car, like, it it just kind of slid or whatever? Like, that's not exactly what happened. And you're like, oh, God, thank you. Like, how many times? But what happens so often is that we get stuck on the handful of no's. The handful of times we said, God, would you do this? And God said, I'm not going to do that because it's not what's best for you. And it's hard, but we get stuck on that. And we run past the thousands, if not millions of times, God has answered prayers. God has responded with a yes. God has moved in our lives. He's done things we haven't even realized. And we're stuck on this time that you said no. And why wouldn't you say yes? And for some of us, what we did was we walked into our room and we shut the door and we said, I don't want to talk to you. What good is prayer if you will not respond with a yes? And I understand that. Like, I get it. That I have had some big prayers that I wanted a yes to and I got a no to. And in the moments after that no, I sat there and my anger and my frustration, I thought, what good is prayer? Like, what good is me begging and pleading and asking if you're just going to say no? 
Like, why wouldn't you say yes? But when I do that, I look at a handful of no's and I run past and I ignore the thousands, if not millions of times God has been compassionate and gracious and good and poured out his love and his mercy on me and I haven't even said thank you. And so as we wrap up this morning, and in a room this size, over in the venue and online, there's probably a handful of people, if not more, that you have gone in the room. You shut the door, and you sat down on the side, on the other side, and you just said, I am frustrated with you, God. I will come to church. I, I will do my duties, but I will not talk to you anymore or ask you for anything because you don't seem to want to talk to me. You don't want to seem to help me. And I want you to know that today God is on the other side of the door and he's knocking and he's saying, would you open it to me? Would you open and talk with me? Because I, I want to have a conversation with you. I know that I said no, but would you trust me? Would you build your idea of my character, not on these two or three, four or five times I said no, but on the thousands if not millions of times I've cared for you? About every single day that I brought the sun up in the sky, about the people I've put in your life who care about you. Would you build my character on those things? And would you open the door to talk to me? Because I want to talk to you. And so if that's you, I hope that you would open that door and you would just say, God, I'm sorry. I've been doing this on my own. I've been trying to do it, and it's exhausting and it's tiring, and I need you. Would you help me? And for the rest of us, that door's wide open, and we've been having a good conversation with God as I look at these stories, I wonder, do we see people the way God sees people? Do we see people the way God sees them? Because you have this first guy come who's a Roman official, and it'd be so easy for the crowd to see him as an enemy, as an oppressor of their people, and to go, this guy does not need help. Or if, if you're going to help him, Jesus, you need to tell him that he needs to quit his job. He needs to stop helping the Romans. He needs to, to help us. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. What he sees is not a Roman official. He sees a dad who has a son who is sick who needs help. He sees a human being who God created in his image, who God loves and cares for. And so do we see people that way? Or do we only see them as an enemy to be hated or an enemy to be fought or an enemy to be destroyed? Or do we see them as people made in God's image? Whether it's, it's a coworker that you don't get along with or someone from a different political party, or a different sports fan, or whatever it might be? Do you see them as people to be loved and cared for? Or do you see them as just an enemy to be destroyed? And then the guy in the second story, how many days did people walk by him, or avoid him, or choose to not talk to him, or even give him the time of day? How many people in our live, lives do we avoid? that we go out of our way to not walk around them, whether it be they're in a different cubicle and so we take the long way around the cubicle so we don't have to go by their cubicle, or whether it's we take the long way through the school so we don't have to go by their locker, or we make sure to keep our eyes at 10 and 2 when we're trying to drive into our driveway because I don't want to look at my neighbor with his dumb fence, whatever it is. Do we, do we see people that way? Or do we see them as people made in God's image who we need to love and we need to care for? That Jesus went out of his way. Like John gives us specific directions to get to this place where these people are, where Jesus went, so that Jesus could kneel down and look at this man eye.
to eye. Do we do that for people? Or do we walk around them? Do we keep our eyes straight forward because we just want to avoid an awkward conversation? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for these moms. And Lord, would you please help? God, for those that have shut that door, would you help them to have the courage to open it? That it's hard when we get a no to a good, a good request. But God, I believe there's something better you're trying to give us. And God, would you help them? And God, for the rest of us, God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to receive these people around us, whether they be people that we might um, view them as opponents or enemies, or they might view them as people that are annoyance? God, would you help us to, to love them? But God, it just seems like you never avoided someone. You never avoided anybody. And so God, I pray that you would help us to not avoid people. God, you would help us to have um, the courage and the strength, but more importantly, the love to go to difficult places and to listen to people that other people avoid. And in those moments, we are showing them and the people around us that, God, you really do believe that every person matters. And we believe it too, and so we're gonna live that way. God, would you help us be those kind of people? Because apart from your Holy Spirit, God, we will, uh, we will fall short of that standard. So would you please help us? I pray this all in your son's name.